Hello, this is John Cleese, and you're listening to the Podcast Network. Little General Napoleon of France tried to conquer the world but lost his pants, met defeat, known as Bonaparte's retreat, and that's when Napoleon met his Waterloo. Sing along, everybody. Waterloo, Waterloo, where will you meet your Waterloo? Every puppy, everybody has to pay. Everybody has to meet his Waterloo. Well, you definitely uh, missed out on a career there as a, as a tenor. I, I can see <laughs> you, you were the fourth tenor that we always needed to really make the three tenors worthwhile. Welcome to the Napoleon. Well, there you go. Welcome to the Napoleon One Hundred and One Podcast, Episode Thirty. Um, I should know this. I think it's four. I think it's 34. 34, The Battle of Waterloo, Part 2, where, with a bit of luck, we'll actually get to the Battle of Waterloo itself. Um, nah. <laughs> so, remind us again who that uh, lovely little ditty was by. Stonewall Jackson, named presumably after the famous American Civil War uh, uh, general. It's a much longer song than that, of course. They've got Adam, uh, as in Adam and Eve, meeting his Waterloo. And they've got uh, Tom Dooley meeting his Waterloo uh, from the famous song of the 50s. Uh, but uh, I thought that uh, we'd only just do the one verse, because I know folks are so anxious to hear about Waterloo. And, of course, I, uh, I wanted you to sing solo. Solo, you couldn't be heard. And that's what you did. <laughs> Oh, you've been working on that one. You got, if you got like, well, that's that's <laughs> even older than I am. When, when the uh, writers have gone out and strike, I think you must have picked up uh, David Letterman's writing team or something like that for your comedy for your stand-up. Well, I, I would love, I'd love to do that sort of thing. Although I would, I would not be a strike breaker, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But if, if once, once they've solved that uh, issue, if uh, if they want to hire me to write for David Letterman or or Leno or or or, or, or even uh, Riley. Uh, that'll be uh, fine. Little By the way, of- I have to uh, I have to mention something here very briefly. Just came in the mail about five minutes ago. Uh, for those of you who are are interested, uh, there's a two volume setup called the Encyclopedia of the Age of Imperialism, 1800 to 1914, uh, and it's got uh, two volumes of really, really very uh, good information on a very wide range of things. Now, I yes, I did write about uh, 10 or 12 episodes in that, or, or entries, I should say, in that. Most of them Napoleonic, although I also actually wrote about the Battle of the Alamo, if you can believe it. Uh, but, you know, this, mine is a, you know, a tenth of a percent of the entries, and, and, and I don't get paid if anyone 
has their library go out and, and get this. But it's yet another really good re reference source for libraries and, and, and major uh, collections, private libraries. Uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, edited by Carl Hodge, who's in Canada, uh, Encyclopedia of the Age of Imperialism, uh, worth, worth having a look at. And again, I, I get not a penny from it. I, I get my free copy, I believe, is, is with my pay. Well, another book to join the ever-growing library of Napoleon-related literature. Good to see. Good to see that you're keeping the industry going. And now just I do a, what I can. A little bit of uh, background information on your Stonewall Jackson gentleman, born November 6, 1932. The song Waterloo came out in 1959. It's described in Wikipedia as a haunting and catchy tune that states that everybody has to meet his Waterloo. Um, hoping that's it's, not exactly it's the case. It's historically inaccurate, by the way. Obviously, Bonaparte's retreat is, is what we call the... Uh, strategic withdrawal from from Russia in 1812 so uh, it's 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 inaccurate in that sense and and whether or not uh, little general Napoleon first of all he wasn't little and did he really try to conquer the world uh, we have certainly disputed that uh, interpretation of history but it's still a fun song uh, and 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 I, I do remember it uh, very well from uh, from the 1950s. I was, of course, uh, an infant in the late 1950s, but uh, I nevertheless somehow managed to remember it. The song uh, was number one for five weeks. Uh, he was a country music singer. It was number one for five weeks and crossed over into the top 40 pop charts where it reached number four. Now, in 1959, I don't know how vibrant the pop charts actually were. You know, we had what Elvis and uh, and and Little Richard, and that was about it, I think, in 1959. Uh, but anyway, well, did, I think there were a just a competition. few more than that. He didn't have a lot of competition. <laughs> there were a few more than that, and of course, they probably defined uh, pop. Uh, somewhat broadly in, in, in those days. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that the Brothers Four and, and the Kingston Trio, uh, two Frank groups Sinatra. that I, I really love, they might have been in the pop uh, category as well, for all I know. Frank Sinatra, probably, in 1959. Well, I, I, I'm not so sure about Frankie, but, but maybe, you know, uh, he, was, uh, he was still very popular. You know, when I, when I was growing up in, in the 50s and, and early 60s, uh, people my age were... And I was born in, in very late uh, 45. I'm, a, I'm about to turn 62 here this this, this month, uh, the day after Christmas, in, in fact. Uh, and uh, the uh, you know people my age were about as likely to listen to some of the big band stuff and and some of the Frank Sinatra stuff as they were to to listen to uh, Stonewall Jackson or the Kingston Trio and and. Uh, uh, Dave Brubeck, of course, was really big then with Take Five and so on. And, you know, I, I, that's what I, music I grew up on, as well as the Beatles when they came out then in the 60s. And, and, uh, and as you mentioned, the King, Elvis. Uh, a lot of these folks, really, there was a big overlap during that, that time frame. And, and again, people my age sort of caught the best of both of them. None of which has a thing to do with Waterloo, but I... I think we're probably stalling because this is not a topic we're really thrilled about. I was just about to say, welcome to 50s music with 
J. David Markham. Um, and by the way, we have been uh, babbling on here in spite of the fact that you've never been to Egypt and uh, or, or to Iraq, rather. And uh, that's a joke. You're all laughing now, I'm sure. The uh, uh, I, I One missed, of our readers wrote in and, and suggested uh, a topic for episode 83. Right. So, yeah. Some people seem to think this is going to go on a little longer. Speaking of uh, feedback, it, it has been a very busy time in the blog comments after episode 33, and, and it's great to see. There's, there's been lots of uh, backwards and forwards and debate and discussion about the events that we discussed in the last episode and some of my uh, comments about uh, Arthur Wellesley, as I like to refer to him, none of this Duke of Wellington nonsense. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of our um, British listeners have taken offence at some of the remarks I made about him not being on the battlefield and being at a dance and attending cricket matches with pretty girls and all this kind of stuff. And and the, I mean, the only thing I have to say in my defence is, suck it up, people. I'm just I'm just telling the facts as they were. Now I can't help it. That's and what I've he- got no problem with cricket matches with pretty girls. I mean, you know, that's that's that's. At least give them credit for for maybe having you know good priorities there, and we've got uh, some interesting comments. There's a fellow named uh, Mutatus Mutandis, uh, and and I haven't looked that up yet. I'm quite sure that's not the real name, although perhaps it is. Uh, uh, who who is less than thrilled with Napoleon, and and has left a couple of very long uh, posts here. And I've responded to a few things, and and I've become a little more active. On, on, on this set of posts that, than I have in some of the earlier ones, uh, but uh, we're we're really up to quite a few uh, quite a few posts, and a lot of it has to do with you know whether Napoleon is essentially a good guy or a bad guy, a you know a progressive or or a tyrant, and 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 of course I think everybody knows pretty much uh, where where I come from, and I want to comment to Sally if you're out there listening, you gave us some uh, Byron. I've I've written several articles uh, about Byron and Napoleon. I'm quite a Byron fan, and I was delighted to uh, to see you come up with a, a, a quote or two there, and and maybe that'll inspire me to go to my Byron and, and bring a few more to put in there with them. Uh, uh, Byron's a fascinating character uh, of the period, of course. Um, just uh, getting back to mutatus mutandus, I think you'll find that's Latin, and it means with those things that have been changed, which need to be changed. And uh, it's the motto of the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning from the uh, X-Men comics. So uh, uh-huh. you need, well, to, you need I, to read I, more I, of your X-Men there, I David. Re- I figured it was Latin. I figured it was Latin, of course, but I, I did not uh, have a chance. I've got a little translation device on my computer but i haven't had a chance to do that but thank you now just in defense of arthur wellesley um i'm I'm going to quote from a book i have here called waterloo letters edited by major general h.t cyborn this is uh, one of the books in your collection you must know of it sure yeah so for people who aren't aware of it um captain william cyborn in the 1830s and 1840s basically wrote to all of the living participants of the Battle of Waterloo asking them for their recollections 
of events. He was putting together a diorama of the battle and wanted to make it as accurate as possible. And we now have this amazing uh, collection of letters, mostly uh, representing the, the Allies' position, of course. But I've got this letter from uh, Major General W. Napier, dated November 28th, 1842. He was actually not at the Battle of Waterloo, but he uh, talks about recollections that he got from the Duke of Wellington himself. And uh, I, won't, I won't read the whole thing, but I, lo- I love this comment. He says, um, he then went to his quarters and found Muffling there, coming from Blucher with the news. He, this is uh, talking about the night of the, the infamous dance, the uh, Duchess of Richmond's ball on the evening of the 15th. He ought to have arrived long before. This is uh, Blucher's uh, messenger, Muffling. But, said the Duke to me, I cannot tell the world that Blucher picked the fattest man in his army to ride with an express to me and that he took 30 hours to go 30 miles. Um, so apparently uh, the, the whole reason for Wellington's delays in getting his backside on the scene was that Blucher picked a fat guy <laughs> to, deliver, to deliver the report and uh, his poor old horse couldn't cope. So that, there you go. That's that's Muffling's uh, contribution to events as told by the Duke of Wellington to Major General W. Napier. So uh, we, here we are. We're on the morning of the 18th, uh, I guess. We, we, we concluded last time with uh, the events of the 17th. We've had the two battles so far of Cotterbra and Ligny, and now... What happens on the morning of the 18th? Do they get up? Is it the crack of dawn? Are they are they out there, you know, with the fog and the crack of dawn, getting into it? Well, they they they, they are certainly up. Both sides, I'm sure, were were wide awake long before dawn because uh, you, you just don't know what the other side is is going to do. All that was pretty clear that the British under under Arthur Wellesley. Uh, were going to to strike a defensive position, and it was going to be up to Napoleon to dislodge them from that position. And that, of course, only makes sense from from the British point of view. Uh, they have no problem if 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 the two armies were to sit there and face off for 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 a week if 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 it were to come to that. Uh, uh, they're in no hurry to give battle. Uh, every every hour, that goes by is likely to bring uh, Prussian reinforcements much more than it would be, say, likely to bring uh, French reinforcements. There's no particular reason to believe that there are, unlike in some previous battles that we've looked at, uh, uh, Austerlitz, for example, uh, where, in fact, uh, there were uh, uh, French reinforcements coming. There are no French reinforcements coming, but Wellington believes and certainly hopes uh, that the Prussians are in fact going to come. So it's up really to Napoleon who needs the victory. Uh, that's another one of the debates we've had on the blog a, a little bit as to you know, what was Wellington's ultimate goal and what was uh, Napoleon's ultimate goal. And in my opinion, Napoleon needed a victory. Now, some of the folks have said, well, it wouldn't matter and, and we'll get into that uh, toward the end of this uh, session or, or at the beginning, perhaps, of, of next week's uh, session. But uh, 
uh, in my opinion, Napoleon needed a victory. He, he could not simply have some kind of uh, a stalling action. Now, maybe he could have claimed Lenia as a victory and ended around, but no one would have been fooled by that. He really had to defeat the British. And so it's up to him to, to take the first action. And he doesn't. Just like we've seen earlier where he, he doesn't take prompt action to send Grouchy after the Prussians, uh, just like we saw with Ney uh, sitting on his hands and letting the, 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 the British uh, escape, in, in essence, uh, from what could have been a fairly significant French victory at the Quatre Bras. Uh, instead, uh, you know, Wellington has moved up toward Brussels and, and uh, settled in at uh, Mont-Saint-Jean. Uh, which is the, the area where he sets up his defensive positions. And the French follow some time in him in what, by the way, must be said, is a pouring rain. And the roads, of course, of those days were not like the, uh, the A4 or whatever. Today, uh, they are a quagmire of mud. So the, the French march in mud. And marching in mud is much more tiresome than marching on a hard surface would be. Uh, so they arrive uh, on the 17th. And on the morning of the 18th, they look out. And to the extent that they can see anything, they can look out across some fields and they can see the defensive positions that the uh, British had set up. And they can also see, and, and this is why I said to the extent that they could see the, the British, they can also see that there is uh, a, a, a great deal uh, of rain. And although the rain clears up, they also notice that everything is a morass of mud, a quagmire, if you will. Now, mud is really, really bad news if you want to fight a battle. It's bad news for a, a number of reasons. The most obvious reason probably to, to, to the average person would be that if you have to maneuver uh, artillery, artillery tends to be very heavy. It tends to sink into mud. It's very difficult to maneuver your, your, your cannon and, and put them where you want, particularly your mobile cannon where you might try to race them across part of a field and quickly set them up to take advantage of, of a tactical situation that has arisen. Uh, it's tough to fire cannon in that the mud tends to swallow up cannonballs. A lot of folks may not realize this, so let me explain a little bit about how, how artillery works when you're firing it against uh, groups of soldiers, particularly if there are massed groups of soldiers. The artillery ball typically doesn't just, you know, hit one soldier and take him out. Obviously, that would be a, an awfully inefficient use of a cannonball, an eight-pound cannonball. They tend to go through several ranks of, of, of men, and they also tend to ricochet a lot. And here's where the mud comes in. Uh, a cannon fire is obviously not really super accurate 
but you can fire a cannonball, have it hit the ground, and it can bounce up and take off six heads before it begins to expend itself. It's, it's really a very, very effective uh, weapon of war in the early 19th century. But a cannonball that hits a muddy field isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to sink into the mud. So unless you are lucky enough to have your cannonball directly hit, you know, at waist level or whatever, uh, the, 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 the row of soldiers, uh, you're not going to have much luck with it because it's not going to ricochet. It's not going to give you uh, that extra bounce, uh, so to speak. So if you are planning on softening up the enemy with a huge cannonade, which is typical of armies of that period and certainly very typical of, of Napoleonic armies, uh, you've, got a, you've, you've, you've got a real problem. Uh, it's also difficult for you to maneuver troops. Foot soldiers can certainly go through mud and, and, and do all the time, but they go much slower, they tire faster, Remember, they're carrying backpacks, they're carrying muskets, uh, they're, 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 they're trying to, to, to occasionally fire rounds, at least when they get close enough. It's, it's not easy to fight in the mud. And it's particularly difficult for a cavalry, especially the heavy cavalry, uh, to have an effective uh, charge in the mud. And if you're going to try to dislodge enemy soldiers, you, you, you really must... Uh, be able to use your cavalry effectively. That said, there's another problem on the other side of the question. And that is, if you wait for the mud to dry a bit, you are giving an opportunity for, in this case, the Prussians to arrive. The longer you wait, every minute, certainly every hour that goes by, is that makes it that much likely that the Prussians are, are going to, to arrive. And if the Prussians arrive, Napoleon and every French commander certainly understood that at a minimum that makes a victory far more difficult and that in fact, if the Prussians come in on the French right flank, it's, it's really going to be tough. You know, it, things, things are not going to look good. If, on the other hand, they can defeat the British and drive them from the field, now if the Prussians show up, especially if they're strung out a bit, as they, as they too are going to be coming across some, some areas where it's been muddy and, and, and where the, the roads are narrow and so on, the Prussians are not going to be in nearly as good a, a position to, to really, truly do anything uh, against a recently victorious uh, French army. So it's to the French benefit to start as quickly uh, as, 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 as possible. And, and by the way, uh, the MUD's not doing the, the British a whole lot of favors. If they need to maneuver, if they need to make any counterattacks, uh, as they do uh, in this case, for example, with the Scots Grays, and certainly as they do at the end of the battle, uh, then the MUD's going to to affect them as well. So it's, you know, the mud is not all to the French disadvantage. The, the French have some advantage uh, with the mud as well. And it's also absolutely the case that while it's more difficult to move your battery, you know, 
uh, artillery park into a position to to blast away at the enemy. And while the blasting away may be less, you know, effective than it would be on a dry field, it can be done. You can fire your cannon, and you can. And some of Napoleon's, uh, you know, officers urged him to do so, uh, but he didn't. He he waited for the dry for the ground to dry. Uh, it was never going to get completely uh, uh, dry, but but he did feel that he needed, you know, some increased ability to maneuver uh, his his artillery and I think especially his 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 cavalry. Uh, Can I interrupt you? And by hey, go go ahead. I'll ask you about artillery. Uh, I've been reading about the application by the British during this battle of Congrave rockets that uh, I, I've never read much about before, and I just was doing some research on them yesterday. So uh, apparently, th this was like one of the first applications by the British on a large scale in a battle of incendiary explosives. I mean, like missiles, basically, designed, copied uh, by Sir William Congrave from a design he saw by the Tipu Sultan during the Anglo-Mysore Wars. And uh, apparently on the 17th, I think, Napoleon lost a gun and its crew, at least according to uh, something I've read in Vincent Cronin, to... Uh, one of these uh, rockets, which would scatter flames, it would sort of explode, and there'd be flames blasting around everywhere. Do you know if Napoleon ever looked at using rockets, or was this uh, purely something the British had as a as an advantage? Yeah, that's a good question. And and to my knowledge, uh, Napoleon was never uh, really very interested in 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 the rockets. Uh, it seems to me he did have some uh, various uh, stages in his campaign, but. But I don't recall that he ever used them effectively. Napoleon had a, sort of a blind spot when, when it came to technology. Uh, he wasn't interested in the steam steam power, which he had been offered. Uh, and I think we talked about it in the Egyptian campaign at the Siege of Acre in the Holy Land that he, he didn't order the use, nor did anyone else apparently, the use of of the observation uh, hot air balloons, which which would have been available and which would have been an absolutely uh, critical uh, piece of information, would have provided critical information at the siege of Acre. So, so uh, uh, you know, Napoleon, as far as I know, really really didn't ever have much use for those. It also has to be said that they were not real effective uh, at Waterloo. Uh, to some extent, for, for the same reason, a, a rocket that hits mud is going to sink into the mud, and the explosion uh, is, is going to be uh, less, uh, less useful. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, how, how effective they were for, for the British, I'm, I'm not so sure either. And I, I hasten to, to point out here, by the way, that I do not consider myself the the ultimate expert on on the Battle of Waterloo and all of the technical aspects and, and every you know minute by minute uh, blow by blow account and I guess for that matter I don't consider myself the ultimate expert on on much of anything but but uh, I'd just say I know I know a fair amount about Waterloo and and I know a and fair Scotch? amount more about some other things I'm I'm I, I'm mildly expertise uh, have mild expertise on. On my medication, I'll, 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 I'll grant you, and I'm, 
I'm drinking a very fine one now. We started this thing a little before 4 o'clock my time in the afternoon, and normally uh, I, I will only take medication at, at 5 o'clock or after, uh, but uh, uh, Mr. Riley here wanted to to uh, do this uh, at, at, at 4 o'clock time, and so I took the approach that, oh, hell, it's got to be 5 o'clock someplace, and uh, so I'm, you can't talk about Waterloo and, 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 and not be... Uh, well fortified with your medication. There's no question about that. I've got something else to insert before you get back on track. Um, I've sure. got in my, uh, in the words of Napoleon, The Emperor Day by Day, uh, edited by R.M. Johnston, on the morning of the 18th, 8.30 a.m., Napoleon apparently says, there are 90 chances in our favour. I tell you, Wellington is a bad general. The English are bad soldiers. We will settle the matter by lunchtime. To which apparently Sult replied, I sincerely hope so. <laughs> uh, well, a, yeah. a leader, first of all, a leader in, in some respects cannot be brutally honest with, with his men in the sense that he's expected to lead and to inspire. And whether he really believed that he had a 90% chance of victory or not, you know, who knows? He might have. Uh, he did have a heck of a a good record uh, on on the field of battle, so it, it wouldn't be un, unreasonable. Uh, Wellington himself is is said to have believed that he didn't exactly have the most sterling army in the world with him uh, at that point. An awful lot of Wellington's forces were not really the the prime uh, British uh, redcoats that that he might have liked to have had. Uh, and, and he recognized that he was up against Napoleon, whose hat was famously said to be worth forty or 50,000 men on the field. Uh, so, you know, there, there was a good chance for Napoleon to win this battle. And, and so N- Napoleon is probably not guilty of too much hyperbole if he, if he suggests uh, that. Whether he's accurate in, in that Wellington is a bad general, I, I think I've said that on one of the blogs that, as far as I'm concerned, Wellington's a good general, but he's not a great general. He's not a Napoleon. And, but, but then who is? You know, most, of the, most of the French generals were, and marshals were not a Napoleon. Wellington, had he been born on the other side of, of, of the uh, English Channel, would have been a perfectly good general uh, under Napoleon. He would not have been competition for Napoleon. Uh, there weren't very many people who were in that category. So, in a sense, we can we can all have it uh, both ways. I don't think very many people, even great fans of, of Wellington, you know, although a few on the blog seem to, uh, would really say that Wellington was at Napoleon's level. But on the other hand, I wouldn't agree with those who who say that that he wasn't good. Wellington, for what kind of you know experience he battles he fought, he was he was fine. I don't want to take anything away from him, but I don't want to give him that which he's you know, not due. And one of the interesting things about Wellington, too, is he was almost the exact same age as Napoleon. Both, yes. Both yes. born in 1769, um, Wellesley on the 1st of May, Napoleon on the 15th of August. So he was a couple of months older. But... Uh, Interesting. Now, also, I've got this uh, in um, Vincent Cronin's book as well, which I thought, again, just says a little bit about Napoleon's character. We're talking about the 17th here. 
He says, uh, next morning he visited Lenyi and neighboring villages where he spoke to the Prussian wounded, gave them brandy and ordered them to be looked after just like Frenchmen. Which apparently, sure. apparently they weren't supposed to bathe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, I did not say that, nor do I believe that. You will get yourself in deep trouble my friend French if they happen to be listening. There you go. I've, I've annoyed the British and now I'm going to annoy the French. There'll be nowhere for me to go. Um, uh, he says, in the next morning at six, Napoleon breakfasted with his generals, including his brother Jerome. Jerome had slept at the Roy d'Espagne Inn at Genappe, where a waiter told him that he had overheard one of Wellington's aides at dinner explaining how the Prussian army would march from Wavre to join the English Jerome passed this news on to Napoleon. Stupidity, said Napoleon. After a battle like Ligny, it is impossible for them to join forces. Well, what do you think he meant by that? Just because they'd been trounced pretty badly? Well, I'd like to know if he ever really said that or if it was wishful thinking. Uh, the, 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 the Prussians were certainly defeated at Ligny. And, and, and certainly uh, they, they, they had to retreat. But they weren't pursued. They retreated in good order. There was a fairly large unit of Prussians uh, that that never were involved in, in in the battle, and and the idea that it would be impossible for them to to uh, eventually tie in with uh, with Wellington, I I think would be a foolish thing to suggest. I don't know if Napoleon said that, and I certainly don't know if he believed it. But again, remember. He has to to motivate his men. Everybody knows this is do or die. Everybody knows that if Napoleon is defeated, even if it's still technically feasible for him to rally the troops and continue the fight, that politically, uh, emotionally, uh, every other way you can think of, for Napoleon to go back to France defeated in any way, shape, or form, is going to be a disaster. So he has to make sure that everybody is thinking completely positively. So of course he's going to downplay any possible uh, strengths that his opponents will have. And it, it, imagine yourself as any any one of his subordinate commanders, whether you're you know a marshal Ney or, or or whether you're any number one of any number of, of generals. The single biggest fear that you have is that somehow the remnants of the Prussians, and everybody knows there's still a lot of Prussians out there, and the British, who, who have hardly been touched uh, by, by Ney, uh, will somehow uh, get together before Napoleon can defeat them. Because you may remember from a time or two ago, the whole point here was that Napoleon got the advantage because the French, or excuse me, the Prussians and the British were separated. And Napoleon was able to drive between them, peel off part of his army, I think foolishly, but nevertheless peel off part of his army to keep the, the, the British at bay. Turned out that really wasn't going to be necessary. There wasn't that much in the way of Brits there at the time. And then turned most of his forces to go after the Prussians and defeat them. Well, he did defeat them, but if somehow they're able to tie back together again with, with the British, then that advantage of having the two forces split is going to be largely negated. 
Sure, there's a there's there's fewer Prussians because they were defeated and they'll be tireder perhaps because they had to fight, but they'll still be there. They'll still have their cannon. They'll still have their firepower. They'll they'll still have the ability to 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 fight the French, and and this is not going to be good news. So Napoleon, to get back to the battle itself, Napoleon needs to move quickly. He does. It, it's very easy to imagine, you know, how history would be different. At least the history of this battle would be different if the rains hadn't come. If the field is dry, and Napoleon starts the campaign at five or six in the morning rather than 11 o'clock, then things are going to be a lot different because at the end of the day, even in, in the way that worked, the, the, the French probably were about to achieve victory, at least until the Prussians were coming and, and, and they had to start peeling off soldiers. So, you know, the, it, it makes a big difference. Anyway, it is what it is, as the saying goes. And once uh, Napoleon uh, is is ready to go, he 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 begins to go in two different directions. <clears throat> uh, the first place is a, a farm called Ugamol, which is off uh, on uh, the left flank, and and uh, Napoleon decides that that he needs to to take that that walled and somewhat fortified uh, a farm. And it's, it's, it's a reasonable thing to do if you are going to do a flanking movement of some kind. As it works out, Napoleon's plan never really was to do much of a flank uh, action, so it's somewhat questionable uh, why he spent so much time and effort against Ugamont. Uh, he also, you know, Ugamont is, uh, you, you can go there and it, it seems to me a lot of that's still there, uh, has a lot of heavy woods. Now it's, it's, it's difficult to attack from a heavy woods. It is especially difficult to move artillery through a heavy woods. And yet without artillery, it's a lot more difficult to take a fortified, uh, position like that. You get a few cannon there and you can blow the gates down and maybe knock a hole in the wall and, and, and kill a bunch of folks and, and all of a sudden things look a lot better for you. I, to this day, do not understand why Napoleon <clears throat> didn't say, listen, dismantle the damn things if you have to and and get enough men to carry them, but get Five small cannon, you know, some of the light field artillery, we're not talking about the biggies here, and mount them in the trees and blast away. If he had done that, in my opinion, if he had done that, then Ugamont would have fallen and fallen fairly quickly because it was not easy to, to, uh, uh, to get reinforcements there. And that would have been... A, a moral victory, it would have certainly helped, helped the morale of, of, of the French and hurt the morale of the British, and given Napoleon an option for some kind of a flanking movement. I've never understood, and most people who study Napoleonic warfare and study the Battle of Waterloo 
have never really understood why Napoleon insisted on on always moving straight ahead. You know, it, it seemed just to cry out for flanking action, but Napoleon's basic strategy was to go head on against the British, uh, who he apparently didn't have much respect for, and and just knock them off of off of their 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 ridge. So that's not going to work, and it's going to be a tenuable drain uh, of of manpower, and and uh, again to to very little end. But Napoleon has other things that he can do as well, uh, and and his first course of action, if you will, is again a frontal assault, and he he looks around and says. You know, where it's it's still it's kind of a muddy field, etc. Where are my freshest troops? Well, raise your hand if you know who the freshest troops uh, would be. That, of course, would be our old friend General de Erlon, uh, who, uh, although they had marched a fair amount back and forth and up and down, etc., had never really gotten <clears throat> involved in any kind of fighting. So. The obvious troops to send were Derlon's, and Derlon marches across the the, the valley. Uh, the British uh, beat them back, and and here comes one of the big mistakes that the British make. Seen brilliantly, by the way, in the movie Waterloo, the Scots Greys, immortalized by uh, Lady. Jane, I want to say, I can't think of her name now, uh, her famous painting, which I have here in the house someplace, a, a poster of the painting, not the painting, Scotland Forever. Uh, here come the, the charge of the Scots Greys, one of the, the finest cavalry units in the British Empire, and, and indeed anywhere, magnificent horses, magnificent looking men, and they are going to charge after the, the withdrawing French soldiers, uh, which is a, a very good strategy, by the way. Uh, retreating infantry uh, can be sliced and diced almost at will by charging a cavalry, and especially a, a good cavalry like the Scots Greys. Very, very brave men. Uh, there are some who say it wasn't very well led. And in fact, I think in the movie Waterloo, they, they, they talk, of, somebody says it was the finest cavalry and the worst led or something like that. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely the case or not, because I've not really studied it, but but nevertheless, they get carried away. And just like in the movie, they go charging across the field and they get way too far. They run out of steam. I mean, you can only charge so long. Uh, they find themselves suddenly deep into enemy territory, a lot like the charge of the Light Brigade, for those of you who, who know anything about that you know, the cavalry disaster in British history. Uh, Napoleon says, okay, fine. He sends it as heavy cuirassiers, which is the, those, the, those giant giants of men wearing these, these breastplates. Uh, they're the last remnants of the medieval knights on horseback, you know, with the suits of armor. And these guys charge in there, and they just decimate the the uh, Scots Grays. He also sends in the the uh, uh, Red Lancers, the 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 the, the French Lancer uh, unit, uh, 
literally again it's almost medieval here we've we've got the the uh, armored uh, knights and we've got the the uh, cavalrymen carrying lances just like they used to uh, to use for jousting and and so forth in the in the middle ages uh, but the advantage of the lances of course that you can stick your opponent uh, before you get in range of of his sword uh, if he doesn't have a pistol to fire at you so so uh, the Scots greys really really uh, take it on on the chin uh, and I've got a um, I've got a quote from Napoleon that might be appropriate here. According to a local sure. peasant, De Coster, forced to serve Napoleon as a guide on June eighteenth, the Emperor was greatly impressed with the bearing of such Allied troops as he could see from near La Belle Alliance. How steadily those troops take the ground, how beautifully those cavalry form. Look at those grey horses. Who are those fine horsemen? These are fine troops, but in half an hour I shall cut them to pieces. And, of yeah. course, speaking uh, of the Scots Greys, their uh, cap badge has Waterloo uh, written on it. They're, they are quite proud of their uh, performance, apparently, at Waterloo. Well, I'm a little surprised uh, that they'd be proud of their performance at Waterloo because that's one of the few times that the, that the British uh, really took it on the chin. And, again, I mean no disrespect to them. They were a cavalry unit, very, very fine soldiers. One... One thing I want everybody to understand is, you know, obviously I pick sides on, on, on these battles. We all know who I'm rooting for. Uh, but I've gone <laughs> to, to battlefields uh, and, and, and seen the monuments to soldiers of both sides. Uh, Borodino, I remember in particular, and it seems to me, I, I may have mentioned this in one of our earlier episodes. I went there and, and we had a ceremony honoring the the, the monument to, to the Russian soldiers, and, you know, I saluted for that. And then we went to the French monument, and we, when there was a French general there, we, we, we honored the memory of the French soldiers, and the Russians were saluting, as, as, as did I. And, and, and I've, the, the same is true anywhere you go. These soldiers on both sides fought bravely. They fought under adverse conditions. Many times, I'm sure they fought not really wanting to or not being convinced that that they were going to win and in some cases maybe not even sure they were fighting for the right side especially uh, in in the case of napoleon's army in 1812 for example where a lot of the somewhat reluctant allies were part of it and i think some of the folks in in, in wellington's uh, army who were not british might have might have wondered you know whether or not uh, it was the best thing to be doing with their lives at that moment uh but they all fought bravely and the Scots Greys, uh, which were in fact a fine fighting unit uh, and very, very storied and, and, and rightfully so, all fought bravely. Uh, if they charged too far, that uh, was the fault of their leadership or, or perhaps the exuberance of, of, of battle. I mean, there's not a lot of real glory in battle for all of the wonderful paintings of, 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 of Carassiers charging across fields. But, but there is a, an adrenaline that gets up and sometimes... Uh, the adrenaline can be good. It can make you do things that you might not otherwise have done, and that can lead to victory. And sometimes that can it can make you do things that you might otherwise might not otherwise have done, and that can lead to defeat. And and so whether it was leadership or or an exuberance born of a of, of a boost in your adrenaline, the Scots Greys uh, went quite a bit too far into enemy territory, and and they paid a really big price. 
I've got I some. I to look up some numbers, and I, I'm afraid I don't have those numbers. I do. But... Aha! I somehow <laughs> figured you would. Very good. I've got a little bit more info too, and and you know, despite the, the claims that I'm anti-British, which I really am not. Um, I do have a lot of Scottish heritage. I'd um, like to shout out to my grandmother living in uh, Scotland and uh, all of my uncles and aunties over there. Um, and so uh, the Scots Greys, I'm okay with. The The reason they have Waterloo and an eagle on their cap is because they actually took the eagle of the French 45th line during That's the right. Battle of Waterloo before they were repulsed by the Polish Imperial Guard Lancers who some historians believe were the best cavalry of the Napoleonic Wars, having never lost a single cavalry engagement. Uh, the Scots Grey's casualties included 122 killed, 93 wounded, and the loss of 228 of the 416 horses that started the charge. The Greys never saw action again that day. The painting, Scotland Forever, is by Lady Butler, and the original but- resides in the Leeds City Art Gallery. And uh, I love the, the, the motto of the uh, Greys. Where is it? I had it here. The official motto was the Royal Scottish motto, Nemo me impune lassesit, forgive my Latin, uh, which apparently translates as no one provokes me with impunity. <coughs> I kind of like Good. that. That's kind of oh, that's wonderful. That's, that's badass, isn't it? That's nobody provokes me with impunity, or nobody touches me with impunity. Is another uh, translation I've got here. That's that's good. They that's they good. Like they that. wore bearskins and were distinguished as the only heavy heavy cavalry regiment not to wear helmets. Now, bearskin is a is a tall fur cap for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, you, you, you know the kind of thing uh, you, you you see the the, um, the the guards who stand out Edinburgh the front of Edinburgh Castle they've got the big sort of furry thing on their head the big tall sort of black furry thing Napo- that's yeah Napoleon's Imperial Guard uh, wore wore bearskins bearskins there you go um, and uh, Napoleon apparently said during this charge those terrible grey horses how they strive. And you can tell from my earlier quote, he was very impressed with the Scots Grace. Well, and he should be, as as always should be. But on the other hand, let's not, you know, sit around and 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 uh, spend too much time <clears throat> trying to prove that we're not anti-British by by uh, <laughs> uh, commending the the Scots Grace. Uh, pro Scottish, pro Irish. On, on a personal level, I'm sorry for each and every death. On a, on 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 a more strategic uh, level, I'm. I'm certainly glad the French won and, and the Scots Greys were defeated, uh, but it didn't ultimately do Napoleon a whole lot of good. But, you know, as the afternoon uh, begins to, to arrive, uh, we, uh, we already see the handwriting on the wall. First, first of all, we've had Hougoumont. Secondly, we've had Darlon's failure to, to deliver a, an early decisive blow. And now you begin to to see uh, off on the right, uh, you see Prussians. Now there are very many of them, and they're pretty they're pretty far away initially, <clears throat> but already Napoleon has to begin to plan for what to do when the Prussians arrive. What's clearly not going to arrive is the thirty three thousand. Uh, man force that is led by 
Marshall Grouchy. Uh, and and the, again, in the movie Waterloo, and we've been taken to task lightly, I think, <clears throat> for, for always promoting this movie. Uh, but, but it is a fun movie and gives a real good flavor. Uh, Napoleon at one point cries out, where's Grouchy? I need those 33,000 men. Where's Grouchy? And I don't know that Napoleon ever literally said uh, Uwe Grouchy, uh, but I wouldn't doubt that he did because, of course, he must have really, really regretted breaking out that many men to go in what turns out to have been a, 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 a very poorly executed and tardily executed uh, pursuit of the Prussians. Even those of you who, who, who are glad Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo, you can well imagine that if Napoleon had another 20,000 men, even if he'd only sent 13,000 just, just to keep the Prussians honest, as it were, uh, or if he hadn't sent anyone, said, you know, the hell with the Prussians are probably going to get there uh, before, before we can stop them, so I'll keep my whole army with me. You know, you have another 33,000 men. To, to throw against the British before Blucher gets there. And, and Waterloo was going to go uh, different as well, in, 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 in my view. But he didn't. It is what it is. And uh, so uh, Napoleon really does have to act quickly. However, unfortunately, the person that he put in charge of acting quickly uh, was our old friend, Marshal uh, <clears throat> Michel Ney. Now, Ney makes a couple of major mistakes. They may have been glorious mistakes, but they were mistakes nonetheless. First of all, he takes, I suppose, as many as 9,000 men and and makes a series of art, uh, excuse me, cavalry charges against Wellington's forces up on the ridge. And <laughs> in the movie, I think in, in Napoleon for Dummies, I say, you know, that's the stuff of movies. And of course, again, the, the movie Waterloo, whatever else you may think of it, shows Ney's attack. It only shows one, really, but there were there were series on the British squares. Brilliantly, you really get the flavor. You know, imagine for a moment that you're a British soldier, and you look out across this field in front of you, and you see thousands. Whether it's five thousand, six, seven, eight, nine thousand, thousands of cavalrymen charging across the field. The, the ground would be literally shaking. The sound would be horrific. Thousands, 9,000, 8,000 cavalry horses with heavy cuirassiers on them charging across this field. It must look like they're all going to just run you right over without hardly a second's notice. But there's a few problems with this glorious charge. 
first of all, the the uh, British aren't just going to sit there and say, uh-oh, here they come. Good luck, guys. They form into squares. Now, a square is literally a formation of soldiers, you know, three, four, five deep, put into a square. So you have a series of rifles with bayonets sticking out from all directions, making it very difficult for a horse charge through. Not impossible, by the way. A lot of folks don't realize that a number of British squares were broken. And you can break a British square a number of ways. One way they didn't do, I'll talk about in a second. But you can, you know, with your pistols that you have as cavalrymen, if enough of you, you know, fire into them so you, you, you have temporary holes uh, and the horses will charge through, that, that's one way. Sometimes the horse can literally leap over them or just, you know, you, if you can get a horse to charge into that, more power to you. Uh, but you know, several, several squares were, were, were broken. But the other thing that the British of course had was their line of artillery. And while these horsemen are charging across the valley, the artillery are firing, uh, away and many, many, uh, soldiers, uh, cavalrymen, uh, were, were, were killed, uh, and, uh, uh eventually there were so many of them the, that the, the uh, artillery was overrun. The artillerymen who fired the guns would run into the protection of the squares, taking with them, of course, this long ramrod that we all know use, is used to, to tap the cannonball into place, etc., etc. So it would be very, very difficult for the French to take control of the cannon, turn them around, and fire into them. Although if they got there fast enough and if anyone happened to drop a, a, a one of those ramrods, it would, be, it would be possible. But what would have been possible? Oh, and by the way, let me just finish that part of the story. The, the cavalry charge goes into the squares, has some success, runs out of steam. So they, they go back across at least part of the valley, reform, and charge again. And, of course, by now, the cavalrymen or the, the, the artillerymen have run back out and they're, they're firing again. Okay. Two things that Ney didn't do that led to the disaster that was Waterloo. And I, I lay, you know, if you're looking for something to explain the defeat at Waterloo, Ugamal is one. Obviously, if you, you know, you can pick things that happened a couple of days before, but on the battlefield itself, Ugamont and the failure to use even two or three cannon drug through the woods, I think was a bloody disaster. But Ney, who I think I say gets the bonehead award, uh, he charges with only cavalry. He overruns the, the artillery and fails to Spike the guns. Now, in case you're not familiar with that, let me explain what spike the guns means. And by guns, we mean cannon. Okay? Whenever someone talks about the guns, they're not talking about the individual muskets. They're talking about the cannon. Most cavalrymen carried a little bag with lead spikes 
not very long, a few inches long, narrow at one end, thick at the other end, and a small hammer. Now, what in the world is that for, you might say? I mean, they're charging across with their swords and their pistols and so on. A cannon has a little tiny hole drilled into the top of the the end that's sealed off, the, 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 the back end, as it were, which is where the fire goes into to ignite the powder that's been placed inside, fire the damn thing. If you can take one of these lead spikes, insert it into that little hole, and it's, it's the hole maybe the size of a Q-tip head or something, not very big. Pound that spike in so that it cannot be easily, if at all, taken out, then that, that gun, that cannon, is useless. Sure, eventually someone could come along and take it out, but in the heat of battle, it isn't going to happen. If a small number of horsemen had dismounted, as they're supposed to do, and spiked all or even most of the heavy guns, then the casualties, at the very least, on the French cavalry would have been far, far less. The momentum would not have been, you know, stopping as much. And indeed, a few more squares might have fallen and the, the British army might have collapsed. You can't be sure. The only thing you can be absolutely certain of is the, the, the cavalry losses would have been far less and the morale... Uh, boost to the British would have been less and the devastation on the side of the French would have been less. And then there's the matter of infantry. <clears throat> Anyone who understands 19th century warfare knows that the only real way to be successful under, under most conditions is to have a combined attack of cavalry and infantry. And the reason is very simple. Against a cavalry charge, the, the defense by, by infantry is, is pretty simple. You form squares. Napoleon did this against the Mamelukes uh, in, 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 in Egypt at the Battle of the Pyramids and was very, very successful. And the British did it against the French at the Battle of Waterloo and were also very, very successful. So at both ends of Napoleon's career and many times in, in the middle, uh, you know, squares were formed to, to defend against coming cavalry. But that's not going to work once the infantry gets there. Because infantry is particularly effective against squares. If you have an infantry coming at you, you want to have, you know, the famous, you know, long, thin line or maybe, you know, a couple, three ranks or whatever. So, you know, they, 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 you've all seen this in various movies. The front rank fires. It goes back to reload. The second rank goes up, fires. It goes back to reload. Here comes the third rank. And so, okay? so it's not very deep. It's long and thin, and it can, it can you know, be very effective in defending against uh, an oncoming uh, attack by, cav by, by infantry. It's lousy against cavalry because cavalry can roar right through a few lines like that, and then they're behind you, and there's chaos, and they're slicing and dicing, and you're in deep doo-doo. 
That's why you form squares. But if you're in squares when the infantry arrive, it's like shooting ducks. It's the proverbial, how do you miss hitting the broad side of a barn? Uh, the worst cavalryman in the world can fire in the general direction of a square and hit somebody. So you really put a defending force in a bad way. If you have a well-coordinated attack by infantry and cavalry, but Ney ne never took the infantry with him. And as a result, the cavalry attack was useless. And for all of Ney's efforts, at the end of that portion of the battle, the British, oh, they had lost some soldiers, no question about it, but they had not lost nearly as many as the French had. The French cavalry was spent. Those that survived were exhausted. And there's a bit of a stalemate, and, and uh, frankly, there's a bit of a lull in the action as both sides sort of collectively uh, regroup. All right. And that my, was your cue to say uh, something. That, yes. was, that was my turn while you have a drink of your medicine. Um, yeah, well, um, so many errors and mistakes and, and, and problems happening across the board here. I did have some orders uh, from Napoleon that I was going to read. Uh, here we go. So you mentioned that Napoleon finally decided to recall Marshal Grouchy. Uh, Marshal Sewell apparently had been recommending this for, for some time during the day. He recommended it earlier in the morning uh, on the 18th, and Napoleon contemptuously rejected the suggestion, according to David Chandler, in his words. And um, obviously, it seems to be dismissing uh, the, the suggestion that he was getting in terms of intelligence that was picked up that uh, Wellington and, and Blucher were going to try and rejoin their forces. Um when he finally did decide to recall Grouchy, he sent off this dispatch. His Majesty desires that you will head to, for Wavre in order to draw near to us and to place yourself in touch with our operations and to keep up your communications with us, pushing before you those portions of the Prussian army which have taken this direction and which have halted at Wavre. This place you ought to reach as soon as possible. Now... Uh, Chandler says of this, it was neither a clear order of recall nor a definite order to continue independent action. Above all, it was at least six hours late in being sent off. So I know that uh, Grouchy often cops a lot of the blame for not following the guns, uh, the, the sound of the cannon. He, you know, Chandler then writes, um, Grouchy settled down for a late breakfast. Hardly was he seated, however, than the sound of firing from the west was heard. General Girard at once urged his superior to drop his present intentions and march without delay to the sound of the cannon, which, of course, is always the old advice. But this in such a, said this in such a forthright and tactless way that he immediately put Grouchy's back up. Referring to the Emperor's last order to pursue Blücher, Grouchy rejected his subordinate's advice. Yet Girard was right. Had he only moved westward, even at midday, Grouchy would have caught up with the Prussians over at River Dial. The moment passed, however, and with it the chance of intercepting Bulow and Persh, for by this hour the head of the leading Prussian column was already approaching Chapelle Saint-Lambert. 
Um, so we've got those issues. We've also got uh, Napoleon's orders here. Again, I'm reading from Chandler. His orders to Marshal Ney. Uh, Directly the army has formed up and soon after 1pm the Emperor will give the order to Marshal Ney and the attack will be delivered to Mont-Saint-Jean village in order to seize the crossroads at that place. To this end the 12-pound batteries of the 2nd and 6th Corps will mass with that of the 1st Corps. These 24 guns will bombard the troops holding Mont-Saint-Jean and Count d'Erlon will begin the attack by first launching the left division and when necessary supporting it by other divisions of the First Corps. But Marshal Ney seems to have apparently penciled a note on the back. Count de Erlon will note that the attack will be delivered first by the left instead of beginning from the right. Inform General Riley Rail, of this uh, change. Now, it, it, according to Chandler, it seems that the actual handling of the battle had been entrusted by the Emperor to Marshal Ney. And... It seems to have all gone wrong when, as you said earlier, Ney just got impetuous and started making non-ordered, is that the right term? Uh, cavalry charges that Napoleon was obviously furious about as well. Uh, there's quotes in here about Napoleon basically blowing his top when he sees uh, Ney rushing in and again. I have to mention, though, Ney's... You know, we've always talked about him being the bravest of the brave, as he was known. Apparently, he lost four horses under him that day. Imagine that, oh, having, yes. having your horse shot out from underneath you four times and getting back on. I mean, that kind of bravery is almost incomprehensible to me. Well, he has, he has a lot of adrenaline going. Listen, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of Ney. Uh, he, he, he's, he's impetuous. He's not real competent. He... He swears up a streak. He was always a great fan of the F word and so on. Uh, but but he's also out of his element when it comes to uh, commanding uh, at, at Waterloo. He, he should not have been the person in command. He allows his emotion. He allows his his uh, desire for glory or whatever to, to overcome uh, what he really should be thinking about he should not attack until he is guaranteed that he have infantry support uh now whether or not napoleon would have released infantry i mean who knows but he didn't he, he didn't uh he didn't look for it and he went without it and and there's no way to excuse uh that uh and and it's also certainly true about grouchy uh, my, my 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 dear friend and one of the top Napoleonic scholars around uh, Jerry Gallagher uh, is is someone who's who's written about it and talked about this whole issue with Grouchy and he and I have some very friendly debates over it uh, uh, at the various conferences uh, that we go to. Uh, he he points out as as you just did that it's really too late that by the time Napoleon really understands that he needs Grouchy, Grouchy could not make it. I'm not so sure, and I also think that Grouchy should have understood much earlier the situation he was in, and and if he had marched to the sound of the guns the very, very minute he heard them, I think that at least some elements of his forces could have gone into uh, uh, combat against the Prussians enough so that they would not be able to to lend the kind of support that they did lend for 
uh, for the British. Uh, but it would have been a, it would have been a close deal, and it would have been difficult, and he would have had to have acted very quickly. And I think that the bigger mistake was sending him to begin with, and, and particularly sending him as late as he was sent. He, had he been sent the same night as Lini or early the next morning, again, things would have been quite different. He would have been much, much closer to the Prussians. Uh, but to give Grouchy his due, uh, and we'll talk about this probably in the next episode, uh, he has, you know, some contact at Wawr with, with uh, the Prussians. He does eventually put the sword in the back. He does eventually uh, have, have uh, uh, combat with them. It's just too little, too late, and too far away from Waterloo. Uh, so I don't, I don't pin all the blame on Grouchy, uh, but I don't completely absolve him of responsibility either. Although, again, the real screw-up on Grouchy's part, I think, was at the beginning of the pursuit much more than it was at the end of the pursuit. Nevertheless, as the, as the afternoon goes on, uh, and into the evening, night's approaching, and you know it's it's really it's really time to to do something, and and Napoleon and and they finally begin to to have some success. They've pounded away at the British line. They've they've you know Ugamont has not been good, but it has also you know kept kept British uh, sending people down there, and now. Toward the big middle of things, there's another farm called La Haye Saint, and and Napoleon's forces are able to take La Haye Saint. It took it took a long time uh, for that to happen, but it finally falls to the French. And when it does, it allows the center of gravity of the French line to move forward, the artillery to move forward into a much better position where the artillery can be effective against the the British uh, positions. Uh, Wellington has to, to pull a lot of his soldiers together to consolidate his line. It's not going to be nearly as long a line, and of course that makes it easier to attack with artillery and so on. And Ney begins to attack again, but this time he's got the cavalry, but he's also got our direct artillery support, and he brings in infantry. And the British line begins to waver. You know, it's not sure at all how much longer it can hold. And this is where Napoleon decides to roll the dice. He stands or on his, rides on his horse in front of his Imperial Guard. He, he brings out five battalions of the Imperial Guard. Now, the Imperial Guard is not used all that often, and they've never lost. And it looks like Napoleon is going to personally lead them into battle. Well, of course, he 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 steps aside eventually and 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 salutes them uh, as they uh, as they go by. But the the uh, the attack goes well. It First, the British are very clever. Wellington, to give him his due, has moved a lot of his men 
back onto a reverse slope, which was part of the reason why Ney was earlier willing to to charge without getting the infantry all lined up. He thought that the British must be retreating. Well, he knows that's not the case now. Nevertheless, on this reverse slope, as the Imperial Guard gets close, the the British are able to pour some pretty you know impressive firepower into them. The guard wavers. It's not really the guard. I don't re- believe that starts to to leave. A lot of people see that the guard is wavering because they're using a formation that is unfortunately very susceptible to the kind of firepower that they're up against. And many other soldiers, you know, the, the guard is defeated uh, and, they, and they begin to run. The guard leaves, although it must be said to a large extent, the guard leaves in pretty good order as, as you'd expect it to. The British counterattack begins. The Prussians, of course, have drawn off way too many French soldiers to, 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 to have the French mount an effective defense against the counterattack. And what Wellington himself once said was a near-run thing, a very, very close battle, becomes, in the end, a rout. The French soldiers flee the battlefield the Prussian cavalry, much fresher than the British who had been fighting for so long, arrives to, to help in the pursuit. The British, of course, are pursuing as well. At least for a while, the British run out of steam relatively soon, and even the Prussians don't dare overextend themselves. And we'll talk next time about, about all of that, probably. Uh, but Napoleon... At first, determined to stay and fight, possibly to, to rally the guard. The guard protects him in a square, but eventually he's hustled off the field, uh, first into his carriage, and that's going to go too slow, so he abandons his carriage and, uh, and hightails it for Paris. And, and we'll talk next time about, about his <clears throat> trip to Paris, because there's a lot more about that withdrawal than than than's in my dummies book for example or even road to glory and this is where my my next book takes on and i want to share some of the stuff that's in my next book so that we can flesh it out a little bit more uh but at the end of the day napoleon's forces so close to victory they were they were so close it must must have just been sickening to the soldiers to say nothing of Ney and, and, and naturally Napoleon. And yet, in spite of the fact that they had such a almost a victory, they end up looking for all the world like an army that has absolutely been devastated. They have been routed and they are streaming back toward the, the French uh, border. Uh, it's really only the exhaustion of the enemy and the, the the nightfall that keeps them from being even even more defeated. Uh, and next time we'll talk about the the uh, events that transpire as they return to uh, Paris, and of course what happens at Paris 
uh, in the next few days. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> well, I'm not going to wrap up just yet. I, I mean, I really want to give uh, Arthur Wellesley his due here. Um, you, you talked about the, the reverse incline, the Ohane Road, where he got, according to Chandler, yeah, he got his soldiers to lie down. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming from the stuff that I've read on this over the years, like it was a deliberate strategy to, to hide, basically, duck. And well, it wasn't, it wasn't just hiding. Let me, let me, well, you know, it, it made it look like they further. were retreating. They were, they were, well, it made it look like they were retreating, but it was also, remember I told you that once Salai Saint was, was taken, the French artillery could get a lot closer. And now the the British are being bombarded, and the best way to defend themselves against the bombardment is to go over the the incline so that the the cannon don't really have a chance to hit you directly as much or to ricochet into you. Uh, and so it was. And, and lying down, of course, makes makes you less of a target for artillery too. Of course, so it was partially hiding and to give the impression of retreat, maybe. But it was to a large extent to, to defend against this bombardment. Uh, and it must be said that soldiers that are lying down are also, in a sense, more vulnerable. So if the cavalry, the French cavalry or the French infantry had gotten there faster somehow, they might have been caught in a position where it was going to be difficult for them to get into a good defensive position. But as it worked out, it worked out really, really well for for Wellington, and, and it was a good move on his part. He had to protect his men from the the the, the cannon barrage. And you know, just the, in terms of uh, moments in military history, when uh, the, the the French are, are marching up the incline, and then all of a sudden they're within sixty yards of the Ohain Road, and the British guards just rise up in front of them. According to Chandler, startled by the sudden apparition, the undeployed guard battalions suddenly stopped. Then, at only 20 yards' range, the British redcoats poured volley after volley into the head of the column. As the guard had advanced without cavalry support, they were called upon to withstand the undiluted firepower of the British infantry. It was more than flesh and blood could stand. The grenadiers hesitated, turned, and retreated. And... Um, and then, of course, uh, there's this this famous <laughs> incident, which again is covered in Sergei Bondarchuk's film, where uh, General Cabron is called upon, or the French is called upon to surrender by the British, and he says, according to history, the guard dies but never surrenders. And I think in the movie is they're they're all then shot. But according to uh, Chandler, he says, although he certainly never uttered this sentence, employing a far conciser five-letter expression to communicate his innermost feelings. Now, I'm assuming that was merde, but my, my understanding of French uh, 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 curse words isn't good enough. Is there another five-letter French curse word? <laughs> I wouldn't know, of course. <laughs> uh, there you go. But they, they, they refused to... To surrender. Um, uh, just wrapping up this, um, Chandler says, Great credit must go to the Allied commanders for the way they handled the battle. 
Wellington certainly chose an excellent defensive position and then proceeded to conduct its defence in the most tenacious and praiseworthy manner. If he can be criticised for wasting valuable men in the Howell detachment, the personal leadership he displayed during the long hours of action of Mont-Saint-Jean is practically beyond reproach. The Iron Duke was ever at the point of crisis, rallying the defeated, exhorting the apprehensive, praising the successful. Only once, when Ponsonby's cavalry exceeded their orders, did his control momentarily slip. His men, too, deserved praise. At best, the Allied army was a very hybrid collection of multinational formations, and the member of British troops present formed rather less than half of the men in the field. Finally, honour must be paid to Field Marshal Blücher and his Prussian soldiers. Wellington's army had hardly any chance of ultimate victory on its own. But the opportune arrival of a growing flood of Prussian troops on the French right flank undoubtedly swung the fortunes of the day. So as we've said... Um, during well, the- that's, that's true, but let me, let me also uh, point out, and this is also from, from Chandler... Uh, uh, Chandler Chandler points out, and and, and I, I tried to suggest this, and and didn't didn't really make it very clear. Uh, when Ney is leading the Imperial Guard at the end, uh, they go up past La Saint, and then for for and, and they're in a column formation. Okay, now a column formation is not too bad a way to to charge up against the long thin line because. Because there's 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 less of a of a frontal target that you are uh, uh, showing to them, but for whatever reason, and, and again, military historians have never really quite understood, I think, why why this happened. Uh, instead of going straight on at them, they veer off to to the right, uh, and uh, actually actually no, they veer they veer to the left toward toward uh, Wellington's right flank. And now they are presenting themselves. First of all, they're going against, as it happens, some of, of Wellington's best soldiers, uh, the very ones that were lying down there in the field, in the cornfield. Uh, but they are also presenting a much broader target. I, I mean, if you want to think about it, if, 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 if you take your, your, your middle finger and your index finger, for example, and stick them out with the, with the rest of your hand closed in a fist. Uh, those are your two columns. If you're heading straight on, uh, the the end has maybe uh, let's say an, an inch to shoot at. But if you rotate your your hand to the left, so the thing begins to point sort of uh, left front, all of a sudden the enemy has maybe three inches to shoot at. Uh, that's a very simple and crude uh, way of explaining it, uh, but it's exactly what happens. So when the the British forces stand up, all of a sudden they have the again the proverbial broadside of a barn to shoot at, and it's, and it's it's just a disaster for the French. There's just no way to other way to put it. It's what um, Chandler says. Um, the guard approached the slope in a single close column of grand divisions, that is to say on a two-company frontage with between 75 and 80 men in the front rank. So, yeah, big target, like shooting the side of a barn, right? Exactly. I've got some um, some, uh, in summation uh, stuff here that I think is good from Vincent Cronin's book, Napoleon. 
Wellington the next day. Uh, oh, actually, we'll talk about the casualties. Uh, Napoleon lost 25,000 men killed and wounded, as well as 16,000 prisoners. Wellington close to 15,000 and the Prussians 7,000, which, you know, in total sort of 20, 22, 23,000. So, you know, it was, a, as you we keep saying, a fairly close run thing. And uh, it was about equal losses on both sides, even at the end of the day. Wellington next day pronounced Waterloo the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. What did Napoleon think of it? Frankly, he was puzzled. He could never understand what had gone wrong. He had been fit. The story of hemorrhoids is a myth, and the one surviving order in his own hand is neatly and clearly written, always with Napoleon a sign of physical and moral well-being. To the question, why did Napoleon lose, the answer lies less on the field of Waterloo, where, once the guns began to blaze, there was little Napoleon could have done to change the outcome, than in three blunders committed before the battle begun. On the morning of the 17th, Napoleon had a unique opportunity to crush Wellington with overwhelming odds while the Prussians were in full retreat. Instead of seizing it, he wasted the morning visiting the wounded, and through muddled staff work, for which Napoleon must bear the blame, failed to give Ney orders to attack. That morning, Napoleon behaved not as a great general, but as a retired soldier who had just been recalled to the colours and is still adjusting to war. In doing, by the way, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with that part. I'm not going to let that go. I'm. I, I think Ney, whether or not he had clear and concise orders, uh, he had been told initially his whole point of being there was to to uh, go and defeat Wellington and push him back, and it was Ney who sat on his butt for for the whole morning. So. While Chandler's right, Napoleon could have handled things better and he could have gotten to Ney faster and maybe discovered Ney hadn't done it. To, to defend Napoleon somewhat, I believe that he assumed that Ney had, in fact, already routed uh, the British or at least had them on, on, on the retreat. And he was aghast to, to get there and discover uh, that that hadn't been done. So we talked a little bit of blame on both sides there. We talked about this in the last episode, though, how Napoleon yeah. didn't send somebody out to recon what had actually happened, and and as you say, assumed and you know huge mistake. Uh, and Napoleon, yeah. as you know, we we've often said, the greatest, if not one of the greatest, if not the greatest, military commanders of all time, uh, should not have allowed that mistake to occur. I mean, he wasn't at the top. Oh, of I his, agree. Wasn't at the top of I his form. I agree with you on that, yes. Um, Cronin says Napoleon's second blunder was that he misjudged the English, not only the ordinary soldiers, who to his surprise remained cool and quick-witted under fire, but also Wellington. Napoleon's tactics had remained the same, but Wellington had now learned to foil them, particularly by, use, by the use of reverse slopes. Napoleon's third blunder was overconfidence. Early on the 18th, he should have acted on Jerome's information about the Prussians. I mentioned earlier that um, Jerome said that they'd in intelligence that the Prussians were going to try and join Wellington and Napoleon dismissed it. He should have either postponed the battle or at least cautiously ordered Grouchy to head for Wahain. Then only a single corps of Blücher's army at most would have been able to intervene at Waterloo. But Napoleon felt confident Ligny had knocked all fight out of the Prussians. That confidence, which when successful is called daring and when unsuccessful overconfidence, had always been a mark <laughs> of the man. It had been there in 1793 when he bombarded a Jaxio citadel from the sea, believing his fellow townsmen would rally to the French. It had been there in Elba, sowing 500 sacks of wheat on land that ordinarily yielded 100, expecting month after month Marie Louise and the King of Rome. It had been strengthened by the stupendous flight of the eagle, and on the morning of 18th of June, it led to military downfall. 
So, with that 90-minute episode, the conclusion of the Battle of Waterloo, the 18th of June, 1815, we're going to leave you, ladies and gentlemen, and children. We've just heard recently that we have children listening to this show. Well, we do, so we have to watch our, our language here. As we always do, we're gentlemen. And, well, that's right. And at least on this show. And, um, and uh, yeah, thank you again to everybody for listening. We really appreciate all of the support, all of the feedback. We, we, we get great joy out of the fact that you are learning and enjoying uh, the, this journey with us. And we'll be back soon to talk about the events after the Battle of Waterloo. What happens to well, Napoleon next? Well, we will, and and we'll also talk a little bit. One thing we didn't do in this episode is talk a little bit about whether or not the Battle of Waterloo, Waterloo even mattered. What would have happened if Napoleon had won? Uh, would that have made any difference? Uh, another fascinating uh, topic. Uh, we might try to get one more episode in before uh, Christmas, but on the off chance that we don't manage to do this, because it gets to be a busy time of year, and we've already done two this month, I think, uh, I want to wish all of you a very, very happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, uh, Happy Holidays, Happy Festival of Lights, whatever, whatever you prefer, uh, but have a very, very good season and a very, very wonderful uh, new year and and I may get a chance to wish this all to you again if we decide to do one more episode but but if not I'll see you in 2008 and it's a festivus for the rest of us that's all I've got to contribute <laughs>